pray together. Let's pray, asking God for his guidance, Lord. And as I open your word, Father, I just, I'm eager to hear you speak through me, Lord. Um, God, we're all broken vessels. We leak. And that, Lord, you um, are ever patient with us. Love you so much, Lord, for loving us. Um, as was said earlier, you are faithful even when we are faithless because you can't deny yourself. And so, Lord, we rejoice in who you are. We are confident in your providential hand. Um, Lord, we watch the news. We grieve over ills in our society, in our city. We have concerns for our nation. Um, God, our hearts ache over a variety of things. But, Lord, uh, you are in control. There was never a moment in all of history where you said, I didn't know that was coming. And Lord, first and foremost, the moment that you were most in control, or should I say, maybe it seemed that you weren't, but you truly were, is at that cross where your very son was crucified by wicked people, our hands driving in those nails. And Lord, while it would look as if you had lost, while it would look as if you were no longer on your throne, while it would seem to be that you weren't in control, God, it was always a part of your plan so that you could save us. And so, Lord, we don't, we don't worry as if we have no hope. Jesus is coming back one day. And so, Lord, between now and then, we want to be faithful, we want to be vigilant, and we want to elevate your name. When all people are afraid, God, we want to say we could take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. So we glory in your name and we trust you to speak even now. In our Savior's name I pray, amen. In 1869, Leo Tolstoy wrote a book called War and Peace. It's a book, one of those books I would love to read but I never plan on doing. It's massive. Uh, I was reading, I was listening to a, someone talk on YouTube who's a, a pretty fa- a fast reader who does this for a living, reviews books, and she said it took her three months of plowing through, and I was like, nah, that'd be like three years for me. But the title of the book's intriguing. He talks about the 1805 invasion of France into Russia and the times of war and the time of peace that characterized that time frame that he was writing in. And the truth be told, no matter who gets elected in our country, no matter what goes on in our nation and in this world, we live in a time of war and a time that's called for peace. We live in a time of war in that all of us who call ourselves children of God, who have put our faith in Jesus, We become adopted into God's family. And and the Bible says in Colossians 1 that we are transferred out of the domain of darkness, that's Satan's land, into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And when there is a transfer of allegiances, there is a war that is declared. If you are a Christian today, your life is characterized by war against the enemy of your soul. You war against Satan. You war against a world that would seek to get you off course. But you also war against yourself. 
I think a lot of times, a friend of mine once said that Satan gets a bad rap. I think that's, that's a pretty interesting statement. And what he was trying to say was this. Our fleshly desires are sinful from birth. And there are times we could blame shift our failures and say the devil made me do it. When the truth of the matter is, no, your sinful nature compelled you and tempted you and you chose to sin and rebelled against God. And so God calls us to wage war, not just against temptation from Satan, not against our, the worldly temptations we face, but to wage war against our own fleshly desires. It's a war that only those who are called Christians can actually fight. Because if you are not a child of God today, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus and turned from your sins and trusted in God, then you can't wage war against your flesh because it's on your side. And so God calls us to put our faith in Christ, to believe on Jesus. And when we do so, we enter into a war and we're called to fight that war. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That means you're not home right now. You, you are immigrants on earth. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It's a time of war. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, our fleshly desires operate in direct contradiction to what God, by the spirit, wants to do in your life. So you live as a child of God, if you are one today, in a time of war. But you're also called to live in a time of peace. The last verse of our uh, scripture today talks about living at peace with one another. And I believe what Jesus is saying there, and we'll get to it when we get there, but he's saying we need each other in this war. And we got to make sure we understand who our enemy is. And when your brother or your sister ticks you off, they are not your enemy. When they irritate you, they're not the evil one. We ought to live at peace with one another, which means dealing with conflict, talking about our disappointments when we discourage and frustrate each other and maybe sin against each other. But we got to strive for peace in order to make sure we understand the war and that we need one another as we fight in this time of war, in this time of peace. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Mark today, chapter 9. Let's turn our Bibles there. Mark chapter 9. There are blue Bibles right in front of you in the pew. If you don't own one, uh, that's your Bible. We want you to have it. If you do own a Bible, we encourage you to bring them as we unpack God's word today. We're in the book of Mark chapter 9. We'll look at verses 42 to the end of the chapter, verse 50. And in the pew Bible, did someone have the page number there? 845. I'm going to read God's word for us. These are the words of Jesus continuing a discussion he's had, he had with his disciples that we talked about last week as we worked through the book of Mark together. But Jesus reminds us of the stakes of this war. He says, beginning in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in, my, in me 
to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Can you say cut it off? It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Can you say it? It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Say it. It It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where there are worms does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. These are the words of Jesus where he chooses not to mince. Jesus is talking straight talk right here. The kind of stuff that makes you a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? And what's interesting, Jesus feels no bothersome feeling about making us feel uncomfortable. I think sometimes we want to soften the language of Scripture because it makes you feel some sort of way. I don't want to do that today. So I'm going to leave some tensions hanging because Jesus leaves some tensions hanging. We're going to hold on to gospel truth where forgiveness and hope lives. But we're going to give some warnings as Jesus gives some warnings. The first warning he gives is to beware of those who would cause you to stumble in your Christian faith. You see, I mentioned when we become children of God, when we put our faith in Jesus, there's a transference of allegiances, and now we are called to walk for Jesus which is the best way to live, filled with joy and forgiveness and hope. But that doesn't mean it's not met with opposition. And Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I want to parse out these words. Jesus says, whoever, which is to mean whoever. He didn't say, well, this per- these kind of people or those kind of people. He says, whoever, again, to make us all sense, okay, this includes everyone who does this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. The word little ones, the phrase there, those two words, is a little difficult to understand. Who is Jesus referring to? Well, just immediately before, we noticed this last week. He talks about a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And he's one who believes in Jesus. And right before that, Jesus talks about a child and saying, if you want to be great, you got to be last. You want to be first, you got to be last. You've got to serve even one as a child. And we mentioned there in the preceding uh, paragraphs that Jesus uses the child not because we're called necessarily, all this is true, to have childlike faith, But what he's emphasizing here in the book of Mark is the low status that children had in society in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And Jesus is saying, you want to be great, you got to serve even the lowliest of people. 
So now we fast forward to verse 42 and wonder, who are the, li- the little ones that Jesus is referring to? Well, maybe he's using this child that's with him as an illustration. But this is what I think Jesus is saying. If the illustration was to emphasize the least, the lowliest, then I believe what Jesus is saying here is this. Whoever causes one of the little ones or the least of ones or the smallest as in significance, one of the lowliest ones who believe in me to sin. I believe what Jesus is referring to are all of the children of God here. All who believe on him, because he says the little ones who believe in him. And so I think what Jesus is saying here, whoever causes a child of mine to sin, these things should come their way. So Jesus is saying he values and and elevates even the lowliest in society, saying they are of great importance. And he says, whoever causes them to sin, the word sin literally means stumble. It gives this idea of falling down or even a shipwreck. And what Jesus is saying ultimately is this. When someone makes it their aim to cause a child of mine to fall from the faith, to shipwreck their belief, it would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea to die. Strong language. But what Jesus is saying is, they're important to me. They they matter to me. And the call for us is to beware of the fact that there are people who would want you to shipwreck your faith, on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is a warning to not be one that causes others to shipwreck their faith. The whoever includes all. And it's a warning for everyone. Don't be a stumbling block to someone who's trying to live for Jesus. And it comes right on the heels of John telling Jesus, hey, I tried to stop that man from casting out a demon. And Jesus is saying, don't be a stumbling block to him. Don't, don't hold him back. And so these words of Jesus are a warning to look out for those who want you to stumble and to watch out for your own life and your own doctrine so you are not one who causes others to stumble. And it can happen in a variety of ways. We see it by false teaching, causing people to stumble. I get so grieved when I hear people who want to live for Jesus, yet they have this legalistic mindset where they feel like they can do things to earn God's favor, and when they fail, that God hates them. And they stumble in their faith to the point where they're like, who wants this God who I feel constantly condemned under? Well, they believe the false teaching about God. People who feed guilt, feed shame in order to get results, that's not what God wants to do, that will lead people to shipwreck, to stumble, to fall. There are hypocritical, intentional kind of living that cause people to stumble. I know of many people who've been turned off from the local church because someone who said they were a Christian could talk the talk better than anyone could do it. But behind closed doors, they were an altogether different person. And they became a stumbling block because of their hypocrisy. Sometimes people are straight up uh, deceitful. They abuse their authority. They manipulate. They abuse people. You know, one thing that just grieves me is the different allegations that come out against various churches. Uh, 
because of leaders who abuse their authority, who abuse and manipulate for their own financial gain. Sexual abuse of children we hear of. We, we hear so many ways that people who claim to be one thing misrepresent the name of Jesus, which is pure and holy, and cause others to shipwreck their faith. And there are many things that just grieve us like that. And Jesus' words here just come as a warning to be careful that there are people like that. I wish I could tell you that wasn't the case. We live in a broken world, though. There are deceivers. There are manipulators. There are people who abuse their power and their authority for selfish ambition and selfish gain. They're stumbling blocks. So watch your step. And don't let the failures of others cause you to see the church in a certain way. We're not perfect. Jesus is perfect. On the flip side, don't be a stumbling block. Now, there's a tension here because you will fail other people. You will let people down. I have let people down. And people might say, you let me down, therefore, the church let me down. That's painful to hear. And so we can't live in this kind of circle of guilt and fear but, but what Jesus is saying, again, he's not softening this. He doesn't clarify. He just leaves it there. And I think we just need to say, all right, I need to check my life. I need to check my heart. I'm going to walk in grace. I will walk in God's forgiveness. I know he is good. I know at times my words will say something I know I shouldn't say. And I'm going to trust in God's forgiveness. But God, search my heart. Am, am I a stumbling block? Guard, God, guard my steps. Am I being led astray? We can bring it back to the word. Jesus gives a warning, and we need to heed the warning. He goes on to say not only do we need to worry about outside influences causing us to stumble, but he says you got to worry about yourself causing you to stumble. This is the war. This is the battle that wages war against your flesh. Jesus says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Jesus tells us to deal dramatically with sin. He tells you, don't bargain with your sinful desires. Don't rationalize it. Three times he mentions hell as unquenchable fire or fire that is not quenched or where a worm doesn't die. Jesus gives some really dark descriptions of hell because it's just that. It's hell. He tells us it's real. Jesus is talking about hell. It's miserable. He gives this description of unquenchable fire. And whether Jesus is speaking metaphorically or he's speaking literally, what he's saying is hell is miserable because it's separation from God. And what Jesus also tells us about hell is that it's where our sin will take us. He says, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your foot, 
Better have yourself lacking that than find yourself in hell. What does Jesus mean by this? What's he trying to say? I think Jesus is creating a tension to help us see that we can't deal lightly with this thing called our flesh desires. That, that's the standard thing he's trying to do here. He's trying to help us see that we can't reason it with it. You can't bargain with your sin. When you bargain, you're looking for a deal. It's like, all right, flesh, if I don't give in to you now, I'm going to still do this, but next time, and you might say, I've never done that like that. But search your heart. We, we bargain with ourselves. Or we say, I'll just do a little bit of it right now, not a lot of it. Whatever it might be, be it gossip, be it fear, be it anger, whatever it might be. We bargain with our sin. And Jesus is saying, you've got to deal dramatically with it. Now, Jesus isn't speaking literal here. We, we don't want to see you guys losing a foot or an eye. But Jesus is speaking with hyperbole, intentional exaggeration to make a point. You know, you're saying, I've been here for a thousand years, it feels like. Well, they're not saying they, they know it's not been a thousand years. They're using hyperbole to make a point that it's been taking long. Jesus is using hyperbole to say you've got to deal dramatically with sin. You've got to cut it off. So here's the tension we see. When you become a child of God, the old you dies. It gets buried. This is why at baptism, we put people under the water. But to this day, we've never kept anyone there. We bring them out because they get raised to a new life. And so I'm walking as a new life, but I'm realizing, hey, that old guy I buried still rears his ugly head sometimes. And so there's this tension between the old me and the new me, the flesh me and the spirit me, and there's a war that takes on throughout my life, and it will end one day, hallelujah, but you're called to fight. And Jesus is saying, you've got to deal dramatically with it. Yes, your justification that you are declared right before God, that's stable. You can't lose that, Jesus says. Paul says it in, in, in Ephesians 1, 14 and 15, or 13 through 15, that when we believed on him, the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, so the Bible teaches that our salvation is secure. But it gives us warnings to search our hearts and be sure, do I know the Lord? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, John 14, 15. And so Jesus' words here are not you to think of some sort of cheap grace like, oh, he'll forgive me. Oh, he'll forgive me. Jesus said, no, cut it off. Don't play with it. The theological term is sanctification. It is growing in holiness. And this is our ongoing life. Yes, positionally, God sees us. He sees the holiness of his son. Thanks be to Jesus. But we are called to walk in it as we wage war. How do we cut off a hand and a foot and tear out an eye then? Because you know the sin in your life. You know the battles you're fighting. How do you fight in a way that honors the Lord? Well, the way we cut off is found in Romans 8, 12 through 13. That's what Paul writes. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's what Jesus says here. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Paul says that the Holy Spirit that is the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance, who indwells every child of God and never leaves us, he is the one that helps you kill your sin. He will help you put it to death. The Spirit of God will give you victory. Well, how does the Spirit help us put our flesh to death? Well, first of all, he gives us the opportunity to bear his fruit in our lives. You see, as we submit to God's spirit and say, I'm going to resist the temptation to lust and I'm going to exhibit self-control because the spirit of God in me is helping me do so. You're not walking by. You are now walking by the spirit. You're bearing the fruit of the spirit. You're living by the spirit. And the spirit is called the spirit of wisdom in Ephesians 1, 16 and 17. Paul asked that the Father would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. See, wisdom is what's needed when you're tempted. You ever been in a tempting situation? You're like, what should I do? Well, that's where the Spirit of God, who lives in every child of God, says, I will guide your steps. Listen to my voice. So when that flirtatious coworker comes by your cubicle or comes by your desk, And you realize, I'm clocked in. I can't run away. What do I do? That's when you say, Spirit of God, you are the spirit of wisdom. Help me know how to diffuse these attacks and fight for holiness. I want to cut off a hand here. Gouge out an eye. He's also called the spirit of truth. Jesus says when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus says he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus says that the Spirit of God will speak the truths of God when the lies of the world and the lies of your flesh are welling up. So when you're listening to that music that you know is causing greed to come up and lust to enter your heart, and you're filled with all things you know God wants you to cut off, the Spirit of truth says, are you going to continue believing these lies are you going to cut it off and embrace my truth? He's the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of truth. He's also the Holy Spirit. See, Titus 3.5 says, Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God has called you to walk in holiness because he has equipped you to do so by his Holy Spirit in you. So that's how we cut off sin. We deal dramatically with it. We flee. We pray. We dig into scriptures. We memorize verses. We recite verses. We make war. John Piper, a pastor out of Minneapolis, he has this real famous quote that bears repeating. He says, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings, and I see so little war. He says, murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. He says, if you wonder how to make war, go to the manual. Don't just bellyache about your failures. Make war. So Jesus says, if it causes you to sin, cut it off. Make war. Fight. When you're in a war, you're attentive to every sound. You're listening. You're seeing. Your perspective. It's urgent. 
You don't bargain with the enemy. You remove it. It's a call to be passive, not to be passive, but to be proactive. Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. What does he mean? He's referring to these, I believe, Old Testament sacrifices. They were displays of God's people worshiping God. And they would burn animal sacrifices with salt as a display of their worship to God. And what Jesus is saying here, in the same way, you've got to let your life on the line as completely sold out as a sacrifice unto me. Verse 50, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, another element of salt is that it preserves It preserves food. There weren't refrigerators in the first century. But there was salt that preserved meat and other foods. And Jesus is saying in that same way, as we beware of stumbling blocks, as we lop off our arms and our eyes, as we cut off the sin in our lives, we are able to be a preservative and to be a gospel influence, I believe what Jesus is saying here, in our society. And he says to be at peace with one another. See, I believe Jesus' words are reminding us that we live in, in a time of war and a time of peace. We wage war against our flesh. We don't blame the devil. Yes, Satan is real. He is the enemy of your soul. He wants you dead. He hates you. Yes. But recognize that you must put to death your fleshly desires to walk according to the way Jesus would want you to walk. This is what the Bible calls repentance. Walking in a way, away from our sin and turning to Jesus. Dying to the old man, taking on the new self. And Jesus says to do so with one another. Can't overstate the importance of accountability in your life and in my life. We need people, men, you need brothers in your life. To help you know when you got to cut off a limb sometimes. Sisters, you, you need a, a woman in your life to help you see when there's stumbling blocks that you're starting to trip over. If we understand that we wage war against our flesh and not against each other, then we have a team now. We're called the church to walk in victory according to the way that Jesus would want us to walk. Struggle is real, church. But our God is faithful. And he has given you everything you need to make war. As I mentioned earlier, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, you are ill-equipped for this battle. The spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of truth, all these qualities of who the Holy Spirit is, is not available to you. The spirit of God is made available to you when you raise your white flag and surrender your life to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you died for me. Forgive me for my sin. I'm calling it that. It's sin. It's rebellion. Forgive me, Jesus. I want to receive your righteousness. I want to live for you and turn away from the old me. And by faith in Jesus, God says that we are declared right, we are adopted into his family, and we're given his Holy Spirit through which we make war. This is the gospel that saves us. This is the gospel that sanctifies us. And this is the gospel 
that makes our calling sure and gives us the hope of eternal life. Praise be to God, even for the tensions of Scripture that call us to search our hearts, because through that, God is sanctifying us, making us look more like Jesus and less like the old self. Let's pray, church. Almighty God, we come before you, Lord, this morning, and we don't want to be on the sideline. God, we don't want to put the car in cruise control and coast through life. Lord, we want to make war, not to earn your love, God. We want to make war because we've been loved. We want to obey not to be accepted, but we want to obey because you have accepted us when we could do nothing. Lord, we live by your grace, and so help us do that. And when we fail, may we get up and repent and turn back to you and live this life in community for the glory of your name. Lord, for those who are here who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon their heart just the way that they know that they're in bondage, a sin that's in their lives. May they see how it's killing them. But may they see today that they can be forgiven and have hope in Jesus. And so, Lord, may they today Believe in the name of your son, Jesus. We commit these things to you, oh God. Amen. Brook families, rise to our feet. Prayer team, when you guys come forward and go to the back. and Church family, God is stirring your heart in any way. For you yourself or someone in your life. As we said earlier, we want to make prayer available to you. We want the joy of having brothers and sisters here to pray with you, to be available to you. So don't fight this battle alone. Don't wage war by yourself. You have people alongside of you who want to walk with you in that. So that's what our prayer team is here for. They're here to pray with you. They're here by the stage and they're in the back of the room. And during this last song, just come forward or go to the back. And reminded, I need you to remind, remind you guys, don't feel like when you come for prayer that people think your life's all messed up. Because a person who is in a pew is just as messed up as you are. We're, this is us. We're, we're, we're imperfect people. And so we need the Lord. We need each other. And so this is why we pray. And so let's pray. Let's cry out during his last song. And let this song be the declaration uh, that we want to hold by. Let's lift our voices together, church family, in praise and adoration to our God. is built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in stuff.